Welcome, dear friends, to the last episode of this season of Out to Lunch, the podcast in which I take fantastic people that you know and love to a top restaurant and we record the chat. In truth, it's not just the last season, but it's the last episode for me, at least for a very long while. Other projects are calling, and so after more than 100 episodes, it's time for me to put my cutlery back in the drawer. But how does one bring down the curtain on what, for me at least, has been a rather joyous project? Well, in truth, the answer quickly became obvious. My first fabulous guest back in March of 2019 was a brilliant actor known for his screen roles in everything from Loki and How to Get Ahead in Advertising to Everybody's Talking About Jamie, Can You Ever Forgive Me, for which he was Oscar nominated, and of course, the role that made him the cult classic with Nail and I. So I asked him if he would have lunch with me again, and happily he said yes. We discuss what's in an Oscar goodie bag, talk about a seriously bloody embarrassing incident at Sandringham, what it's like living with grief over his dearly departed wife, the superb dialect coach Joan Washington, whose life and death he has written about so beautifully in his new book, A Pocket Full of Happiness. It's the very lovely Richard E. Grant. You know, the British aristocracy, s and Oh, it wouldn't be the first, surely, at Sandringham to have got out the whips. For the record, yes. I, I am not part of that, <laughs> and I have not indulged in anything involving any pain whatsoever. This is about the last thing I could ever do. And so we come back to where it all began. When we recorded what was... At that point, a kind of proof of concept for Out to Lunch, we brought Richard E. Grant to Sartoria on Savile Row. It's owned by the brilliant chef Francesco Mazzi's food I followed all over London from St. Alban to Lanimar and now to Sartoria. He is a gutsy Italian chef who brings a certain refinement to it. And the important thing is, at this time of year, he does a lovely thing with white truffles. Richard E. Grant sniffs everything. It's not just an affectation, he just smells everything. When I brought him here the first time, he stuck his nose into everything, particularly the white truffles. There were white truffles on the menu, and I want him to stick his nose into those too. Let's go inside. Hello, Richard. Hello. Lovely to see you again. Good, and you? Would you like sparkling or still? Whatever that one is. Sparkling? Yeah. yeah. Yes, please. You just sniffed the napkin. Uh, yeah, I s- sniff everything. Inside. I know. So. It, it's all there. It's all there on tape. Um, in your one-man show, at the end of the first half, which is the, the one-man bit before you get to the Q and A, yeah, you run a lovely video, and I think it's from Nigel Slater's "My Life on a Plate." With uh, you. Taste of my life. Taste of my called. life. Yeah, and it's actually uh, your late wife Joan uh-huh. making porridge the exactly. way the way you have it. I'm not going to say the way you like it because she makes it clear that you don't actually like it, but just get it down. You. Yeah, I hate porridge. Do you still have it every morning? I have it every morning, yeah. Just because it keeps you going and it keeps me heated up and fed till lunchtime. Could you describe, (laughs) and please don't take this the wrong way, this terrible dish of porridge that you have? Porridge boiled in water, because I don't um, drink milk. So it's very loose and liquidy. Runny, yeah. Yeah. And then in order to get it down, I put either jam or fruit and cranberry juice in it to... Swirl it around. You pour the cranberry juice over the top at the end. I do indeed. And you do this every single morning? I'm afraid so, yeah. You've always struck me as a man who lives for a certain amount of pleasure. Oh, yeah, entirely. But uh, it's, the, it's the quickest way of getting... You know, I, I love eggs and bacon, all those things for breakfast, but as a thing that's going to keep you regular and going to lunchtime, <laughs> I found it to be regular. the most effective, yeah. Yes, the prune factor in food. And <laughs> even though you say you don't like it, maybe you like not liking it. No, I'm not that uh, masochistic. Uh, I'm in a profession that's masochistic enough where you're rejected so, um, or told no. So, no, with food, not. But if I'm in a hotel or anybody else's, anywhere that's not at home, and somebody says, would you like Eggs Benedict? I'll be first in the queue. Right, OK. Well, look, I think we can do better than <laughs> porridge. OK. Now, I don't know if you recall yes. uh, uh, the last time, which was actually quite a long time ago. We never quite admitted how, how long before the series eventually started it was. But it how was, long ago was it? It was November 2016, Richard. <laughs> Whoa, six years ago, yes. Yeah. So this is a truffle menu because mm-hmm. we're in truffle season. There's okay. a man who sniffs things. Yes. So we could start, as we did last time, with the truffle tagliolini. Perfect. 
I would love that. And then they come to the table and they do the whole theatre of shaving things with truffles. Perfect. I have no recollection what it was you had the last time. I have no idea. But I have to struggle to remember what I was doing yesterday, which is why I keep a diary. Um, you do, don't you? Every yeah, single day? Every single day. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. This is Leonardo. Hi. Bonjour. This is Richard. Hi. All right, we are agreed that we're going to go for the tagliolini with white truffles for the theatre and the smell of it. No problem at all. And to start? We, we start with this one. So two tagliolini with truffles as a starter. Yeah. Beautiful. And Richard, what would you like for a main? Uh, vitello tonnata as a main course, please. So you want to start as a main, sir? Please. No problem at all. So you can double the portion? Yeah. <laughs> I've had it here a number of times. The seafood fregola, please. Oh, that's what I was going to have, and I thought, well... Well, you can try mine. If I've already had the pasta. No, I will never eat off somebody else's plate. Will you never eat off someone else's Just plate? Just drives me insane if people Sorry, pick off my... Sorry, I'll let you enjoy your lunch. Thank, Thank you very you. much. You if don't somebody... drink, so we're not offering you booze. Thank you. But You're... if somebody takes stuff off my plate, it drives me potty. What do you do in Chinese restaurants? Where the go. dish is... You don't go? Don't go to them. Specifically because it's sharing plates in the middle of the table? That and the fact that they have the worst lighting of any restaurants that I've ever been to. It's always fluorescent or so brightly lit. And if you're over 40, I think it's brutal. <laughs> so I, I won't go. I just avoid them. And if they say this is a sharing plate, I say, well, just please bring me the, the plates that I'm going to eat off. And then I'm happy. And it's, not, it's not about money. I'd happily pay for, you know, if somebody wants two French fries off my, you know, steak and chips, I will order them another plate so they can just have those two, but don't take them off my plate. And is that a, a, a hygiene thing or a, a boarding school thing? Probably or, or a combination of all of that. I think it's, I think that, you know, when you're a child, the one thing that you can, apart from refusing to wear certain clothes or hand-me-downs, uh, if somebody takes stuff off your plate, I remember very, from a very young age thinking that, that was unacceptable. And clearly this isn't something you felt the need to deal with in therapy, which I know you've been through many, many times. No. Now, look, I am going to do the potted history of okay. your life. All right. Which is born in Swaziland mm -hmm. in the late 50s, 57, I think. 57, black and white. Black and white. Brought up, your father was in the education system. Yep. Woke up on the back seat of your car, finding your mother shagging your father's best friend. Mm -hmm. uh, parents divorced. Dad became an alcoholic, threatened to shoot you one night. You ran away, you came back. You eventually went to university in South Africa, having decided that you wanted to be an actor. Mm -hmm. Came to London starved for a bit, met the great dialect coach Joan Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get back into that in a minute. Got cast in With Nail and I, mm -hmm. had a fantastic career, was nominated for an Oscar for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Now you can go back and listen to all of this in the first episode of Out to Lunch, which went out in March 2019. But I'm not going to do all of that stuff. I mean, we may get into bits of it. Okay. So in your one-man show, which has been touring, and I think you're about to go to Australia with it. I am, yeah. Yeah, on Wednesday. You describe getting together with Joan. Yeah. She was a dialect coach at the Actors' Centre. And then you asked for private lessons. And then she asked you to record some dialogue in... Siswati. Siswati. Mm -hmm. And that was January 83. And you ended up in bed together. And, well, hey! All gorgeous. Now, here's the thing. If I looked at her IMDb, with yeah. the, inter the Internet Movie Database, which mm -hmm. lists, is pretty accurate usually, this. Yeah. Do you know what her first credit on IMDb is? No. It's Yentl. Oh, yes, I, know. Well, I, I didn't know that was her first credit. It's literally the first one. And what struck me was that Richard E. Grant, the man who adores Barbara Streisand, Streisand to such a degree... He has Streisand. A, Streisand, thank you. Thank you. I apologise. That's all um, right. She, mostly to Barbara, not to you. Um, <laughs> you have a sculpture of her, her head in the back garden. In yeah, fact, the last time we communicated, you were in the expensive seats, I was on the grass at Barbara Streisand in Hyde Park and mm -hmm. all that. She must literally have just completed her work on Yentl in, because it stopped filming in October 1982. Yes. And I met Joan in November 1982. Okay, so my question was, did you know that she'd done Yentl? No idea, and I think that if she had told me, she would probably run for the hills if she'd heard how obsessed I was with Streisand at that, at that point. So I only found out in April 1983, and she was about to go off to coach 
Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins in the remake of, of Mutiny about it in Tahiti. A fine film said, in many ways. And she said, I've got some tapes that I think that you would absolutely love and they're going to sustain you while I'm away. And I said, what are they? And she said, these are the unorchestrated, just with a piano background of Streisand from the read-through of Yentl. And that's when she told me that she had worked on the film. So she hadn't, she hadn't told me before that. Anybody who doesn't know, Yentl is, was Barbara Streisand's passion project in a way. It was the- Directorial for, debut. Yeah, and famously, she gave you a, a cheap rate on dialect lessons. She did. Did you actually need them or was it just that you fancied her? Uh, no, I did need them because I had been told by people that I had auditioned for and didn't get the job. They said, you speak English like somebody from the 1950s and you need to sound more like somebody from the 1980s. She, I mean, she said to me when I asked her for private lessons at the Actors Centre, um, she said, all right, come, come for them. I'll give you two or three lessons, 20 pounds a shot for an hour each time. And I said, oh, my bed said Notting Hill Gate is 30 pounds a week. So 20 pounds of that as I'm a waiter is a huge amount of money. She said, what can you afford? And I said, 12 pounds, She said, a done deal. And then said, if you ever make it as an actor, I want to be reimbursed. So on our first wedding anniversary, on the 1st of November, 1987, uh, I looked up and, and saw that paper was the gift that you give. So I gave her a wadge of shiny 50 pound pink notes. And I said, I hope that I've repaid my debt. And she accepted. A, a, a similar story. I became, as a student, a sort of angel to my then-girlfriend's, now-wife's, uh, theatre company. It was a £1,000 that you could circulate around to get on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Do you recall this? It was a Thatcherite little venture that if you could show £1,000 in your bank account, they would pay you 40 quid a week to do whatever you needed to do. Right. I never had a thousand pounds in my bank account. And it was meant to come back to me, but in fact they used it to fund their production at the Edinburgh Festival. And I went up to see, well, to see the production and she said, yeah, the audiences haven't been very great. We might not be able to give it all back to you. And on my 50th birthday, yeah. she gave back to me oh. with interest. Wow. Win-win. <laughs> Win-win. Um, so you've been married for how long now? 30 years. And are you still sleeping in the same bed together? You're interested in this, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. Yes, very much so. I Good. can't imagine why you would be with someone and not be in the same bed. That's my argument. But the amount of people that I know that are my age, I'm older than you, um, who no longer sleep with their partners in the same bed, and they say, oh, it's because he or she snores or whatever. I, I get that, but uh, I still think that it's the place where everything is sorted out. To get into it, yeah. because actually I think you prefer to talk than not talk, yeah. do you find a bit of you thinking... I would do anything to still be in bed with Joan. Yes. Uh, and, oh, yeah, And yeah. to not be in bed with your partner feels almost wasteful. It does feel wasteful. And I've resolved the, the what I call the steering wheel part of a relationship where at the end of the day or at the end of your dinner or whatever you're doing, you exchange everything about that person. What was Jay like? What did he smell like? What did he order to eat? What was he wearing? You know, how busy was the restaurant? All that detail that I'm obsessed with. Um, and the trough of silence, I suppose, that grief hurtles you into is that after six months of thinking, God, how do I bear this? I thought, well, I know what, after 38 years with her, what her response to everything would be. So without walking around and having a sort of out loud conversation as though I'm on an earpiece, that conversation goes on silently in my head now. And I find that has been a way of navigating and ameliorating her physical absence. Did you have that mental conversation with her about writing the book, Pocketful of Happiness, which uh, is your diary uh, both of, of her terminal illness mm -hmm. and of the things that were happening to you that were related, if that makes sense. Yeah, because she knew that I was a diarist and that um, I had told her that I was very intent on keeping a forensically detailed diary about the time that we did have left together so that I'd never forget it. Um, she understood that. Um, did she ever see any of it? No, because I think 
hear me talk non-stop day and night. She didn't um, particularly feel like, well, she never asked to, to read what I had written. No, she, she never did. Oh, pastor yeah. is arriving, Richard. Wonderful, 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 wonderful. So the, the white gloves are going on. The gloves are going on. Yeah. <laughs> Would you want to have a quick sniff of a truffle? Wow, that is absolutely... Uh-huh. <laughs> Orgasmatron. Absolutely perfect. The, the key here, and I think I mentioned this the first time six years ago, yeah. is when... Uh, six years ago, my God. When Leonardo starts shaving, yes. you should engage him in conversation about... Are you very into football, Leonardo? <laughs> yes. Which team? Uh, in England is uh, Chelsea. Yeah. And in my love is for Juventus. Okay. So once you get shaving... Good. So what do you think is going to happen in the World Cup? Leonardo. In the World Cup, I would like uh, to remember the Euro Cup. I really love all that. But the Euro uh, Cup? Why? What happened there? <laughs> but the point is, yes. Shameless. Don't see me there, thank you. And have a lovely tagliolini. We will. So we have a, before us a sort of bird's nest of tagliolini and a butter sauce with an egg yolk in the middle. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. What just happened? Oh, I carry a bag of molden salt with me everywhere I go because there's never enough salt on anything for me, as far as I'm concerned. Not even here in this gorgeous not Sartoria just, restaurant. It's not just, a, I mean, I won't ask to share because that would disgust you, but the it was a Union Jack, a little Union Jack bag. Is oh, that, yeah. Is that possibly a bag that your perfume, Jack, comes in? It is indeed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because the bottle is now out, so I've got the bag and it's too small for my phone, so I put salt in there instead. Are we allowed to start eating? You are allowed to start eating. I might grow oh, some pepper when it arrives. Thank you. Because one of the funny things that comes across, I never met Joan, mm -hmm. sadly, is that everything that you are in this book, yeah. which is open and, I'm going to say, boundaryless. Yeah, boundaryless, you, yeah. She was which not. drives English people nuts. <laughs> yeah. Joan was Abaddonian. Abaddonian, yeah. But did she not have those boundaries? She, she comes across as... She had all the boundaries. Yeah, that's, what, that's, that's the point. Yeah. But she was very provocative in what she, how she spoke to people. She was very private, but with total strangers, she would ask people the most intimate questions about their lives and get them talking. Um, she just never published stuff like I have done. So... And that was, that was the only argument that we really had in the last eight months of her life when she said nobody is to know about this because she was coaching Brendan Gleeson on a movie and Rafe Fiennes on another movie and she said, I can still do this via Skype or Zoom. And it soon became apparent that she couldn't do that. And she said, but nobody must know about this. And I said, well, you know that from my childhood, secrets are toxic, so... It's too much of a burden to put on our daughter and I to have to lie about it. And I, I said, you know, that, that we've been to so many funerals where we have joked and said, God, if the person in the box could only hear what everybody was saying about them, and you never get to, um, to until it's too late. And so she was very, very recalcitrant and you know, reluctant about doing that. And then my daughter and I went ahead and did it. And we were tsunamied by messages of support and you know, gestures of kindness. So she saw the value of it very, very quickly and apologised, which was major for her, to back down. I mean, it resulted in some amazing things. Nigella, did she send food every Sunday night? Nigella Lawson sent food every Sunday afternoon in a cab to our house, and it was about three days' worth of home-cooked food and things that she knew were good for Joan to eat and that she liked because she knew both of us very well. And that is an extraordinary thing to do. I think it's worth saying, although it's not doesn't explain why Nigella did this, she has lost far too many people to cancer yeah. and lived through it. Her, she lost her but, mother, her sister, yeah. you know, John Diamond, her first husband, died of cancer. So she knows that action is the greatest thing that you can do because I realise that, and I've, I've, I'm guilty of it myself, I've said to people who are terminally ill, let me know if there's anything I can do for you, and I will. Without I'm doing thinking, it. Yeah. Well, y you do, but you're then putting the burden on the other person, on either the carer or the person who's, who's ill. Whereas if you just do something practical or turn up, send flowers or write a letter or call them, make food, whatever, um, that counts enormously. There are extraordinary descriptions of people doing that. Vanessa Redgrave and her daughter yep. turning up with ice cream. Yeah. 
Yeah, come and have a picnic on our bed. Gabriel Byrne just turning up and talking. Absolutely, talking. And, and when the um, steroid drugs affected her and brain tumors affected her clarity of thought um, towards the end of her life, uh, when you know, I got distressed about that and Gabriel will just, you know, in his completely Dublin Irish way, just went down the rabbit hole of wherever she was talking. And so there was no judgment. And that was a great lesson for me for, to see how he navigated that. You've described yourself not so much as a glass half full person as three quarters full. I know, that annoys English people too. <laughs> it doesn't annoy me. I'm just... In, it, 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 in the face of a terminal illness... Mm-hmm your dear wife dying, Mm -hmm. was it possible to find happiness during that process? Or is is that... Oh, yes. Yeah, because once we knew what her diagnosis was and she was told 12 to 18 months at best or less, and it ended up being only eight months. I say only eight months, but within those eight months, we were able to talk, share and express everything that we felt for each other. Um, in a way that you are denied if somebody dies very quickly or they go into a coma. Oily, your daughter. Yes. And it feels strange to say that name. No, it's all right. It's short for Olivia, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. But does anybody call her Olivia? Uh, the people that don't know her do, yeah. But when, when just before she was born, we knew that we were having a... a the daughter and Jones said you know with your body shape and your length of face she's probably going to look like olive oil so that's where the nickname oily came from it stuck it, it was oily who came with you to the oscars wasn't it she was yeah joan bombshelled me two days before and she said i don't want to go she'd been through the golden globes and said that was an endurance and she wasn't going to go for the a second round i think it's one of the things that people love is your openness to the world in which you move. If you stand outside it, if you're, if, if you're not part of it, yeah. there can seem to be something extremely glamorous about being in a room with Brad Pitt and George Clooney and Jennifer Lawrence and blah, 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 all these, Lady Gaga and all these mm-hmm. people. And sometimes people in that position go, oh, they're just people. And of course they are, but they are also superstars. Yeah. And when you write about it, there is a Kidna Sweetie Shop sense to it. Oh, completely. Yeah, I unashamedly feel like you know, going to the Oscars was like being Madame Swords come to life. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it because I knew that it was a once-in-a-lifetime ride that I had never experienced before and will never experience again. So, essentially, I got to meet every famous person that I had either long admired or newly admired in one room. It was astonishing. <laughs> yeah, I but, loved but it. But also, you got to meet them with status, didn't you? Yes, they knew they knew my name. Which uh, because you were an me. Oscar nominee for Best Supporting Actor exactly in a that. brilliant, brilliant for, film. For that nanosecond, thank you, of time that you have, that your flame burns, you know, slightly brighter than the normal. Um, it it was, you know, it was extraordinary, and the fact that I didn't uh, win uh, in my category, I knew, as did all the other. Um, the, the other four nominees who I'd got to know on this award circuit over the six months that it took. Remind me who the other four nominees were. Uh, Adam Driver, Sam Elliott, Sam Rockwell and Mahershal Ali. Mahershal Ali. Yeah. One of the things people are obsessed by, by the Oscars, yeah. if you're a nominee, how good was the goodie bag? I was offered a facelift, <laughs> a trip to the Antarctic, a holiday in the Greek islands, Botox, Lip fillers. A lot of cosmetics, though. A lot of cosmetics, yeah. And um, I've had all of them. As you can see, I yeah, absolutely. And now I'm six years younger than when yeah. you last saw me six years ago. Indeed. You barely look, you know, a day over 39. What is it? You get a bag and there's full of envelopes saying, yeah. if you would like a trip to Antarctica? Yeah. A trip on a luxury boat to do. I hate the cold, so I didn't take that option. Were there any, was there anything in that bag you did take? Yeah, a trip to the Greek islands, I took that, um, to Mykonos. And what else? Oh, you get, you get stuff. Um, yeah, it's cosmetics and chocolate and... So it was a goodie bag that my daughter enjoyed. I think she, she basically went through the lot. So I didn't see much of it. <laughs> uh, did you take any of it back to Joan? 
No, it was one of the reasons that she found the Golden Globe so challenging, is that she's five foot three, and all the women, once they were in the high heels and the hairdos and everything, were all over six foot, pushing everybody, her out of the way. And they'd all had 25 years of facial surgery. So she said, you can't compete with these Amazon goddesses. So I understood where she was coming from. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Got a more big tornado for you. Thank you very much. And we got the best. Wow. Oh my goodness. That yes. looks amazing. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Your, your Vitello Tonato is an absolute beauty with a few decorations on top that I don't yes. normally see. Yeah, I've a never quail seen that egg before. On there. Quail egg, anchovy, all sorts. Yeah, this is a Garden of Babylon on top, Sartoria style. The choice to do a one-man show, mm-hmm. which would deal in great detail with Joan's illness and then mm-hmm. death. Was that yours? My publisher said, would I do a book signing tour? And I agreed to that. And then, because they work in collaboration with Fane Productions, who produce, you know, as you know, all too well, Alex Fane. I was his first client. Thing. Yeah sending people around the country. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to Nigella Lawson, and she said her advice was not to be interviewed because then there's a kind of interlocutor, a barrier between you and the audience. She said, if you can be brave enough, the first one will be very nerve-wracking, but go and speak to the audience for an hour, and then after the interval, they send in all their questions via the app and you then answer their questions from an iPad for the second half of the show. And so I was terrified. Um, when Had you I done a one-man show before? No, never. I did this in Edinburgh, and the response was so, so astonished me that I saw the value of what Nigella had advised. By having a, a conversation and dealing with all the stories of our life together and our 38-year careers intertwined plus the last eight months of her life, it means that I get to talk about her um, because what is so challenging about bereavement is that after after the person died and then you have a certain amount of attention for a month or two months afterwards and then it's like a cliff face of silence because nobody talks about the person anymore. And they think, Do you think they avoid talking about yeah, the person? Yeah, and I think there's either a fear that, that they're going to upset you or wh- whatever the reasons are. But I find it very, very bizarre to be having a conversation with people that we knew in common and her name is never mentioned, as though she never existed. So in doing this tour, I'm, you know, I feel like I, it's a sort of form of resurrection and I keep her alive longer. So I've really enjoyed doing that. Does it help? Yeah, hugely. You rationally understand that the person is no longer there, but emotionally, I still, even 30 months later, I still find it impossible to believe that she's not there. And I don't know that I will ever, ever fully accept that. I think it's just the way that death works on you, or on me in particular. Famously, she said to you in quite close to the end that you must find a pocket full of happiness in every day, which yeah. is a beautiful phrase. Yeah, four days before she died, she said to my daughter and I, challenge you to find a pocket full of happiness in each day because I know that you're going to be sad, but that is what I want you to try and do. And it's really become a kind of a mantra in which she's guided us through the subsequent 13 months of her not being around. And 
also absolved us from any guilt at feeling joy or happiness in something that's good that's happening. Like today, having this delicious lunch, she absolutely loved truffle pasta, but um, I now feel no guilt that I'm enjoying this with you because she gave that in that phrase, simple as it is, you know, find a pocket full of happiness each day and don't feel guilty about it. And is the performance of the show also part of that? Does it give you happiness to do the whole thing? Yeah, it does, because the response that you get from the audience and their questions in the second half and then meeting people who want their books signed and in a minute or two that you spend with a total stranger, they reveal what has happened, thank you, in, in their own life. And, you know, that's the common denominator that every... It's what Joan also quipped, she said... It just happens to be my turn. Every single one of us, including you and our daughter, are going to die. It's, you know, unavoidable. Do we talk enough about death? You know, when I was in Ireland, people talk about it and they have a wake. They deal with it in a much more ritualistic, ceremonial way than we do. I think that we do everything to avoid talking about it. And that's been the revelation of uh, touring this book, is that people have said you have enabled us to talk about stuff that we find difficult to. She died in September of... 2021. 2021. Mm-hmm. At what point, you did some jobs, some work while she was dying. Yeah. Did you stop altogether? Did you say to your agent, I'm out of circulation now for a while? I said that I wasn't going to work for 18 months because I thought, I positively hoped that if they had said 12 to 18 months, that she would get 18 months. And during that time, I was offered Dakota Johnson's father in a Netflix version of Persuasion. And Jones said to me, I think it'd be really good for you to just go and do that. And you'd come back with some you know, stories and it's only 10 days and it's not consecutive. You must go and do it. And I was very reluctant. And then she and Oily got together and said, oh, for God's sake, go and do it. So I did. And said, we need the money too. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's what I did. And then I did one day on, a friend of mine, Stephen Merchant, has wrote a series called Outlaws yeah. and asked me to go and do a day on that. So I did. That's, that's as much as I did in that time. And since, obviously, you wrote the book mm-hmm. and you're now on tour. Yeah. I worked non-stop. Um, I, I did a TV series of prequel to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea called Nautilus in Australia in the spring this year. Then went, had a one-day break and did a film in Hamburg set in Oxfordshire. And then another one-day break and then did Emerald Fennell's second feature after she'd won her Oscar for Promising Young Woman. Um, it's called Saltburn, and then the then the book came out. So it is. I've been very very grateful for that much work activity because it it stops you from, I suppose, getting morose or feeling that you you're not your life is not moving forward. And the situation you're in. And this is not to kind of emphasise it by the question, but you've said people don't want to talk about these things, so I'm talking about it. You'd be lonely anywhere. Yeah, you can be loneliest in a room full of people um, because the person that you most want to share everything with is no longer there. But you just have to get used to that. I had Mirza and Sanjeev Baskar's house on Saturday night. The last time I was in their house, Joe and I were together. I remember what we ate and who was there. And so going back, that... I hadn't anticipated that, but I, I was very aware that I was the spare. So the six other, you know, six other guests are couples, and then... And then you. Yeah, you're the spare wheel. And you can uh, hear Mira on the episode before this on Out to Lunch, because oh. <laughs> we ate at Pizarro only last week. She's it, a fantastic cook. I, I got that sense. Oh, my gosh, she's a wonderful cook. Did you discover certain things about these celebrity friends of yours through nursing Joan and them coming to your aid? Generosity. I I suppose the most surprising of all of them was the then Prince Charles, because just weeks before Joan died, 
he contacted us and said, could he come and visit? We said yes. And he sat in our garden in this cottage in Gloucestershire where, we, where she spent the last eight months of her life and brought a bag of mangoes because he knew they were her favourite fruit and sat with her and was very engaged and held her hand and said, you know, I've... My nickname for her was the Colonel because we got stoned one night about 20 years ago and she'd woke up in the middle of the night and said, I am the Colonel, why didn't everybody just do what I tell them to do? So he knew her as the Colonel as well. He Did said, he know why? Did yeah. he know why she was known as the oh, Colonel? Oh, yeah. And um, he said, it's been an absolute privilege and honour to have known you, Joan. And she said, well, I'm still here, um, which, you know, broke the ice. And he was... So that was surprising. A man who is as busy as he is to find the time to come and do that. How do you know him? He asked me about 25 years ago to be an ambassador for the Prince's Trust. I mean, way back then, when the great love of his life, Camilla, was very, very unpopular in the press and with the public. I was asked to a dinner at St. James's Palace and an Aquarius said to me, would you have any objection to sitting next to Camilla Parker Bowles? And I said, why, why would I? And they said, well, we're just asking because some people do feel very strongly about that. And so I sat next to her and she was so boundaryless and open and talked about absolutely everything had a great sense of humour, so you know, we hit it off very, very quickly. And I think that the fact that Joan was so... She didn't have a sycophantic bone in her body and just spoke to Prince or former pauper, as I was, in exactly the same way, that when you're in a position where you are so surrounded by sycophancy of some sort or another, people always wanting something, I'm surmising, I think that's what was so appealing to them about her, that, you know, she just talked about absolutely everything. There is a story, and I'm going to get you to tell it. Yeah. You're invited to stay at Sandringham. <laughs> what happened? I was rehearsing a film about Napoleon, a French film called Monsieur N, in Paris, and had to do an enormous number of writing lessons. So, on a very, very obstreperous horse and then when I came back on the Eurostar you know I had a numb bum at this point and we then drove to Sandringham and uh, when we got changed in the evening um, all your clothes are laid out and your suitcases unpacked by valet and you know it's extraordinary it's like being go Gossard Park for real and Joan said your bum's bleeding and I said no it's not she said yeah it is you, it looks like you've been whipped can you not feel that and I said no it's been numb for about a week and she said, well, you've got to get rid of these boxes that are so bloodied. And I said, well, where? So I looked under the bed. She said, you can't leave them there. I looked around everywhere, and I thought, we're going to put them in the bin. My suitcase had been taken away. So there was a very high wardrobe, and I'm six foot two, and I had to get a chair to stand in order to get this, these, the bloody evidence on top of the wardrobe. So I put them on there and didn't think anything of it. And then the next morning after breakfast, came down and you know, tweeds were laid out for the day and these freshly laundered, de-bloodied boxes were on the bed. I've got to ask you, what were you thinking when you put them up on the top of the wardrobe? That they they'd could never stay be there found. In, in, in perpetuity? They'd never be found. Yeah, they'd never <laughs> be found. They were in a guest bedroom, they'd never be found. And uh, so I looked under the bed and I thought there must be closed circuit cameras in the room. I thought, how else would they have found them? Nobody would go and look on the top of a wardrobe. Not if somebody just stayed there for one night. And then Joan just joked and said, well, I think that you know, the laundry department at Sandringham would have had a good laugh that there was a speech teacher and an actor who were obviously engaged in some very heavy S&M <laughs> duty the night before. So I never found out and I never, I never had the guts to ask any of the staff um, how Mind they you, had found them. You know, the British aristocracy, S&M, uh, it wouldn't be the first, surely, at Sandringham to have got out the whips. For the record, yes. I, I am not part of that, <laughs> and I have not indulged in anything involving any pain whatsoever. This is about the last thing I could ever do. I no wall bars? No, no. Catherine Reels? Uh, somebody slapped my arse. In 1976, somebody that I was going out with, and I won't tell you her name, um, <laughs> in my first year of university, and I said, what's that? And she said, oh, I like that. And I said, mm, I'm gone, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm not up for that. Well, you know, people can change over time. Food. 
Sorry? You haven't finished your food. Because yours is almost pure protein. Mine's quite heavy on the carbs. And having done, I think, two orders from the, the rice and pasta side of the... Oh, okay. Of the, of the, I've almost finished it. So just you, for the are record. you taking that as a, as a takeaway? No, there's very little left here. Oh, okay. Was well, it good? It's very good. And it's just a perfect expression of seafood. It's just absolutely brilliant. Mm. One of the other things you've taken to doing is sharing videos on Twitter. Yes. And I think Instagram as well. Yeah, both. Very personal. And some of them are very light and frothy. There's a beautiful one of you with the proscenium arch, uh-huh. which was part of the set for Saltburn. Indeed. Emerald Fennell's new film. Mm-hmm. You basically begged it off the set and said, well, I'll have it if it's going in the skip. Well, the thing is that what happens at the end of, at the end of every movie, all these sets that they build, which are so astonishingly detailed and brilliantly done, they get trashed or you know, sent into a skip or recycled because you they, they, they couldn't pay for the storage of them. So I said, is it possible to have that and have it you know, installed in my garden? It's a beautiful thing. It looks like a, a kind of giant version of a Pollux toy theatre. Exactly right, yeah. And you've put it up to frame the many-foot-high tall bust of The two-foot-high, uh, yes, of Barbara's face. I'm guessing And it's, it's lit. And it's lit. Yeah. How long do you think it's going to survive? Because I'm assuming it was made for the film. It's not made for permanence outside. Oh, it's made of wood and uh, plywood. I've also put roofing felt over the frame at the top so that the rain can't rot it from the top. And it's also got 12 layers of varnish on it. So I think it might might see me out. Uh, Not all of them have been as jolly as that. There There was one only, I think, last week where you were simply woken up and you were describe yourself as flawed by grief and yeah. that some mornings that would happen yeah it's like a tsunami that hits you and you have no idea when it's going to happen and i couldn't get out of bed till lunchtime and uh that has been an extraordinary value for me for social media twitter and instagram because without any plan or forethought i've just posted things and it's how the the book got commissioned in the first place because at the beginning of this year I posted it and said that, you know, my wife had said to my daughter and I, pocket full of happiness in each day, try and find that. And as a result of posting that, uh, publishers then called up and said, would you write a memoir? Because you are so isolated and alone, especially in the middle of the night, if you wake up and you can't go to sleep or whatever, that if you post something about what that feels like, you then get a cyber launch of response where people are in the experience or have experienced the exact same thing. So even though they're people that you will never meet, there is a sense of that you're not alone. And that I found incredibly helpful. Joan was amazing. She, she basically created the role of the dialect coach, didn't she? She did, yeah. And the response from people that worked with her, who were way more famous and A-list than the majority of people that I've worked with or been around, that's, that was extraordinary. And, it, yeah, that you don't feel alone, I suppose that's the bottom, bottom line of it. Has Oily been comfortable with it? I think in the last year, she has censored one thing that I said, and I can't remember what it was. You do say in the show, or at least you did the, yeah. the Bath one, that the description of being a priapic teenager at the site of Barbara's Island, she said, really, Dad, that's, that's more information than I need. Yeah, being in a state of... Permanent erection after seeing What's Up Doc when I was 15 in 1972 was more information than she needs to hear. And I understand that, but, you know, it got a good laugh from the audience, so... Yeah. By you any tra- means trade off one thing or another. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about the prospect of going to Australia with this show? How uh, many dates are you doing? I'm in Melbourne at the Hamer Hall on Friday night and then Sydney Opera House on Sunday. Oh, let's stop, let's stop for a second, shall we? Yeah. You're playing the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, that's pretty extraordinary. <laughs> for a boy from Swaziland, as it was then called, it's now called Eswatini, it's, it's an astonishing you know, tra- career trajectory to end up being there. But I've worked in Australia over the last 20 years six times, so I know lots of people there. And they'll be keen to see you, It's a they? very friendly place, as you know. Are you good at living in the present tense, i.e. enjoying the moment as it happens around you? Yes, yeah, hugely. And I think that more than anything, because my father died at the age of 53 from lung cancer when I was 24, 
I thought, oh, that's just over double the age that I am now, as I was then. So I thought, you've got to grab everything that you can while you can. So I try as much as possible to live in the moment. You also played the Palladium. I did. That was an astonishment to me. Yeah. Also, an incredible thrill because I went for the first time when I was 12 years old in 1969 with my father to see Max Bygraves. And, you know, You'd, extraordinary it, experience. Was that the same trip where you also saw hair with your father? Yeah. And saw Elaine Page's front bum. When she you was were in 12. the chorus when I was 12, yeah. And when you finally, I assume you have met her since. Oh, I you? know Elaine really well now. We're great friends. Was that, your never op- seen was that your opening line, Richard? No, it wasn't, but I, <laughs> hand on heart here, I say for the record, I've not seen Elaine's front bum since then, since I was 12. Well, you know, there's still time. Uh, <laughs> still time. <laughs> Selena's actually got her head in her hands. Okay. <laughs> Would you like dessert? Do you have lemon sorbet? Uh, Please, just one scoop, thank you. No problem. The lemon cream with blueberries? Blueberries? Thank, thank you very much. Do you ever find yourself surprised at the jobs that come your way? Constantly. I'm, I'm, I'm still surprised that I get offered jobs, especially at my age, because you're supposed to have been put out to, put out to grass, like old Dobbin, um, by my age. So I'm, I am amazed that I've, I've working so much. Your turn in Loki <laughs> was fantastic. <laughs> thank you. The, uh, uh, did they did they send you um, a sketch of the outfit before you yes, were presented? Yes, it had muscles. With... Had muscles, and the sketch like the original cartoons of the sixties. And I thought, finally, I'm going to have muscles, and I've been born without any. And I'd step into a muscle suit, and they didn't. I was in the sort of lycra green, Kermit oh, the Frog type contraption and the horns on my head and I begged them for a cape. I said, at least try and give me some shoulders. So they're reluctant. I said, you know, it's according to the, the original cartoons he had he had a cape, so please can I have that? I mean I don't know whether you'd like a visual reference on this. So what are you about to launch at me? Well actually yeah. uh, Gully, who's uh, our sound engineer, picked this up yesterday in a Forbidden Planet, which is pretty much a, it's a it's a low-key classic action doll. Yeah, but you see he is pumped with muscles and that's what I thought I was going to have and I didn't have any of these things. Even the, even the, um, the yellow Y fronts are you know, <laughs> sculpted into a triangle whereas the ones I had looked like old granny's knickers. Well, that's what I would like to have looked like. Uh, so were you a bit disappointed? Thank you, Gully, for bringing that. Yeah, I almost got into a fist fight with the costume designer, I said. I thought that I was having muscles in this. Why have I not got any? And she said, no, 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 you're going to look great in this. And I felt well, like... Except could... that actually the turn is partly to make you look... There's a great Yiddish word for it, which is nebbish. Yes, I was... It was very classic nebbish. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to bring this all sort of full circle... Yes. Joan's instruction, find yes. a pocket full of happiness. Well, yeah. it's easy for her to say because she was checking out. Yeah. Have you done it in every day? Every day. Every single day. And to come back to your question about, you know, are you, do you live in the moment? Uh, because I spent my life essentially chasing my own tail, like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. Um, it has made me in, you know, current parlance to be more mindful of stuff. And if the weather's good or the traffic's not bad or, you know, somebody sends you a lovely letter or just something that you would, maybe have taken for granted prior to her death, I'm now much more cognizant of these things that would amount to a pocket full of happiness. Much, much, much more. You are allowed a bad day. Oh, yeah, and they come, but I don't seek them out, you know. (laughs) So do you feel you're doing right by her? Definitely, yeah, honouring her what she set my challenge to be. Well, Richard, you were the very first guest on Out to Lunch, and as I'm stepping away, at least for a while, okay. uh, it is a joy that you've been the last guest Thank on you. Out to Lunch. Thank you very uh, much. And it was as much of a thrill as it was the first <laughs> time. So can I say, 
Richard E. Grant, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Jay Rayner, thank you very much for getting me out for lunch. Thank you so much to the wondrous Richard E. Grant and for Sartoria in Mayfair and chef Francesco Mazzi for hosting us again after all these years. And yes, this really is the last Out to Lunch that I'll be doing, at least for a good long while, as I get on with other things. If you're new to this podcast, well, there are still over 100 episodes to listen to. And if you're not sick of me, I will still be hosting The Kitchen Cabinet over on BBC Radio 4. Please do join me there. Uh, I'll be handing over the Out to Lunch cutlery to a new and fabulous host when it returns next year. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast to find out who that is and to get new episodes as soon as they land. Also, please do share this with simply everyone. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It helps to keep the show on the road. As this is my last, a few thank yous are in order to Jez Nelson of Something Else, who first proposed the idea and who, with his colleague Steve Ackerman, got it on its feet and steered it to glory. To former exec producer Darby Doris, who guided the show through so much of its life, to the various assistant producers, the brilliant uh, Anya Das, Bethany Hocken, Jemima Rathbone, for research support and so much else. To all the superb sound and mix engineers led by Josh Gibbs, Gulliver Tickle, Paul Brogdon and Leif Troop. And to producer extraordinaire Selena Reem, without whom I simply couldn't have done it. Uh, and there are three key thank yous. Firstly, to all of my fabulous guests for agreeing to sit down with me and eat while I ask them impertinent questions. To all the restaurants that accommodated us, please do support them. I only ever took people to seriously good places. But most of all, to you for listening. There's no shortage of great podcasts out there. And the fact that you chose to listen to this one and millions of times, well, it means an awful lot. And so finally, one last time. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. For this episode, the recording engineer was Gulliver Tickle and the mix engineer is Jay Beale. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hawkins. Selena Reem is the producer and the executive producer is Ollie Wilson. Thank you so much for listening.